I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. I looked at the audience with this weird bravado that came out of God knows where, and I just said, all you fine ladies out there. And then I did this massive pelvic thrust towards the audience. As I said, watch out. Somebody gonna cue me or do I cue myself? Cue yourself. Okay. Hey everybody, it's Kelly Ripa again, back with another episode of Let's Talk Off Camera. So let's turn the cameras off and get started. Okay, I'm very excited, Albert and Jan. We have the perfect guest for our topic today because we're going to discuss knowing what you want in life and going after it and pivoting and how to calm not just the doubters that doubt you, but your internal doubt. I think we all know a thing or two about the voices in our head. And there's nobody better to have this conversation with because he's an actor, he's an author, he's a former White House staff member, which is my favorite of all the titles. (laughs) And uh, you all know him as Cal Penn. Um, But before we bring him on, I just want to read a little bit from his bio because he may be too good for us. Do you know (laughs) what I mean? Okay? So, of course designated survivor, House, Harold and Kumar, the entire franchise. Uh, Then from 2009 to 2011, he's like, "Mm, I think I'm going to work for the uh, Obama administration. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what the fuck we're going to say to him, but you guys better come up with something good. We got to sound smart. Fake it till we make it. Like, oh, yes. Do tell me about that. (laughs) Tell me about your foray into politics. Um, So I... Feel like I want to get to him. Oh my god! But I really want to talk about Albert's coming out to his parents' story, and I will tie this all together. But I don't know if you've ever heard Albert's story about when he came out to his parents. Yeah, it was a uh, Thursday night. Uh, Went home. They were, "Why are you here?" And I said, "Oh, you're watching Seinfeld, right? I'm going to be up in my bedroom whenever you have a minute." Did they, when they said, why are you here? Did they say who died or did they say, (laughs) why are you here? Usually it's who's dead, right? Who's dead. Because when Italian children go home to visit their parents or call them, they say, who died? Who's dead? It's immediate. So you usually cut that off at the pass. When they answer the phone, you say, everything's fine. Nobody's dead. (laughs) Um, So no, I went upstairs. My mom came in first and (laughs) it was a very weird because she was clearly walked away from Seinfeld, which is a very big deal for Elaine. Yeah, this is pre-pause. <laughs> this is pre-pause. Mm-hmm. This is turn on the VCR, Ronnie. <laughs> and then said, why are you here? And I said, well, I just wanted to talk to you because I've been seeing a therapist. And what I've realized is that I'm, you know, confused with my sexuality. Well, wow. <laughs> 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 that went to... Well, get unconfused. Get unconfused is the, that's how we came up with the get phrase unconfused. get unconfused. Because it's no life for you to live and I worry about you. And I and then there's a knock at the door. 
my dad walks in. What's going on now? Another Kelly will appreciate this defiant Italian thing. What's going on here? Your wife, your wife, <laughs> your wife, no longer my mother. Your, your, your wife. wife is having a hard time understanding that I've been seeing a therapist and that I've been confused with my sexuality. And now I look at my dad, an old Italian man, and he said, look, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while, but your mother hasn't let me. And what I wanted to say is that whether you're asexual, bisexual, heterosexual, or homosexual, it would never change the way we feel about you. Mm. But what I do want to say is the fact that you've been seeing a therapist and not coming <laughs> to the two people that love you unconditionally, that... I have a problem with. I love your dad. The two no-fly things (laughs) in an Italian house is that you don't go to other people. You keep everything in the family. Never, always. And you never see a therapist under any circumstance. Oh, my God. Unless you're crazy. Are you crazy? Because I'm not crazy. Right. Right? Yes. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so I wanted to get that story out there because I wanted to talk to our guest today about his own coming out story, but it's like so much part of a deeper dive into who he is. So let's bring on the man of the hour. I don't think another guest can ever say that they have ties to White Castle and the White House. (laughs) Please welcome Cowpen, everybody. Cowpen. Hey, thank you. (laughs) I bet you thought we were never going to get to you. Well, it was, I mean, this was very flattering. And I was also like, when you were nerding out over what a nerd I am, I was remembering John Cho, who plays Harold in the Harold and Kumar movies. Wonderful guy, hilarious. I remember there was something that I was like, I felt very burdened by at one point when we were hanging out. And he just goes, man, you are going to die so early if you continue (laughs) to be this high strung. But it's hard to relax. I mean, first of all, you're from New Jersey, so you're going to be higher strung. Already, right. exactly. You get Now, this. which branch of New Jersey are you from, the North or the South Jersey? Because they are separate okay. states. They are separate states. I'm from Monmouth County, which is decidedly Central Jersey. Central Jersey, yes. That is I the know. Mason-Dixon line of New Jersey. <laughs> it is. It's interesting because Jersey is is fairly diverse, right? And the the town, the way I describe our town is like, it was like white diverse. So what I mean by that is like, it wasn't weird that I, you know, was bilingual or trilingual, right? There are plenty of kids who were Polish and Italian, so many Jewish kids, right. like a, a lot of people who spoke more than one language at home or ate a different kind of food at home. So like, I never felt like I had a foot in two different worlds. I just felt like I was growing up in America and that's how everybody is. But you, ha- you faced a lot of bullying, right? When I was in middle school, like bullying wasn't even called bullying. It was just called eighth grade. You know, for me, it was sort of twofold. It was like, I love drama club. I was like a drama club nerd. That universally for any middle school student is like, if you're in band or drama club, you have made a choice to deal with a certain amount of pure hell. Abuse. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So there's like the part of the abuse that you know you're going to deal with, but you love your art so much that you're willing to deal with it. There was that. And then I was also one of the few brown kids in the school. So somehow they like masterfully combined the brownness with the being a drama kid for like the the chef's kiss of bullying at the time. (laughs) (laughs) That's really funny. You know, if you had been blessed by living in South Jersey, I went to a very diverse high school and we had lots of uh, brown kids, lots of black kids. Uh But what was interesting was the theater world was still for the most part 
I would say primarily it was like white kids in theater. And so we were sort of mostly made fun of by everyone. (laughs) But you said that acting became like a superpower for you. And do you remember like, was it a play or a performance or something that like turned the tide for you? Yeah, there was one specific play. So in eighth grade, we did The Wiz, which is the, the, the Urban Wizard of Oz for folks who don't know. And I got cast as the Tin Man. So I was very excited about this. But rehearsal was after school. And so there was a separate bus that would bring all the theater students home. But you shared that late bus with all the soccer players who were also staying after school for practice. And so it was sort of this like, Literally hell on wheels where you would like you would leave rehearsal, get bullied on the way to the bus. And then basically like that bus ride was just like it was awesome. Yeah. Um, but you dealt with it because you knew like, OK, I'm doing this play and I really want to do it. And also these kids are idiots. So whatever. And right before the play went up, the director, I guess it was one of the music teachers, said, great news, kids. You're going to get to do three scenes from the musical at a special school assembly tomorrow in front of the whole school. And we were like, no, we're not. Absolutely (laughs) not. There is a big difference between like parents paying to watch their kids in a play and a bunch of other shitty 13 year olds like being forced to watch their peers. Correct. Right. Like so. So we all said no. And the director called our bluff. I was like, well, then I'm pulling the play down. So it's it's the day of this assembly. And the Tin Man has one scene where the Tin Man gets his heart. And when he gets his heart, there's this this line he has. He's supposed to look at the audience and say, all you fine ladies out there, watch out. And it's this like very sweet, wholesome line because the Tin Man finally has his heart, yeah. right? He's finally capable of love. Yeah. And, and so I remember getting that heart. And then I don't remember anything because it was the first time that I was um, in the zone, which actors you know, can sort of understand, like, the character has completely overtaken you. You like, you're no longer as a human, you're no longer in control of what you're saying or doing. You're just experiencing the moment. So I get this heart. I don't remember anything else, except that I apparently walked to the end of the stage. And instead of just saying sweetly, all you fine ladies, watch out. I looked at the audience with this weird bravado that came out of God knows where. And I just said, all you fine ladies out there, And then I did this massive pelvic thrust towards the audience (laughs) as I said, watch out. And the crowd went wild. Everyone started applauding. People were on their feet. Girls started screaming. And I went back to my mark where I was supposed to stand on stage. And that's where I sort of snapped out of it. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to get in so much trouble. (laughs) And we walk off stage. The director was like, what was that? And I was like, I'm so sorry. I don't know. He's like, no, that was great. Did you see the crowd? I was like, yeah, I kind of did. and and that the late bus that day on, on, on the way home, I got on the bus and all the soccer players started applauding. Wow. And and I was waiting for like the spitballs, right? right for that to right. be the joke. But instead they were sort of like, wow, that was really cool. We had no idea that, that that's what a play was like. And, you know, it, like part of that conversation was super problematic in retrospect. Like, oh, what didn't you tell us that's what you were doing? Right. As if it was like the onus was on me right, to explain course, right. to you that, right. We um, wouldn't have been so shitty it, to you had we known. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> right. Had we known that you're deserving. Shame on behavior. you, Cal. Right, exactly, literally. Uh, but the big takeaway, which always stuck with me, was this idea that, you know, we change somebody's mind about something. Mm-hmm. 
just with comedy, mm-hmm. but I kind of felt like there's a magic to whatever this is, this, whether it's togetherness, whether it's changing somebody's behavior, whatever that is, I love that feeling. And I kind of want to see if that's a thing that people do in life. So that was sort of one of the early sparks of wanting to be an actor. And so when you have that conversation with your parents, I think I want to pursue acting. Yeah, How does it go? Yeah, the conversation is basically like, I, I, I want to do this, and then them explaining that that's not why they moved to America. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and look, as a kid, obviously, I, I, I totally didn't get it at all. I'm like, what do you mean? Why would you come to America if you didn't want your kid to believe that the American dream's possible? And I think to my, to my parents, you know, I, I actually, I had the chance to talk to them about this when I was writing my book and I it was very tough because they sort of expressed that this is not something that they thought that I should do and the the Indian American community overall especially at that time you know the immigration laws changed in the mid 1960s my dad came in the early 70s so he was part of this first big wave of of Asian American immigration Asian Americans go back to the 1800s and before to be clear but th- but this particular block of immigration was made up primarily of like engineers and doctors which by the way is the reason there are so many like brown and yellow doctors it's not because there's anything inherent in anyone's DNA it's just like oh, there was a shortage of American-born doctors and engineers. So immigration laws changed to allow people from certain countries to come Mm -hmm. to fill that labor shortage. And so my dad was an engineer and he came during that period. And so for them, it was like, we cannot fathom why you would want to do something that's that risky, that doesn't have paycheck behind it, or at least a guarantee of employment. So it was really rough in those days. And I I didn't realize till, till way later, when I asked my parents, and I said, hey, I have these memories of you know, like you having your friends over and a bunch of aunties and uncles pulling me aside saying, you know, you're not smart enough to go to medical school. You know, why don't you apply yourself? Things like that. And I would think, I just don't understand why there's this weird correlation in their minds between their ethnicity or their background and what their kids want to do for their career. So I asked my parents, I said, how embarrassing was it for you guys in those days, right? When like I was 16 or 17 saying that I wanted to apply to drama school. And they said, um, it was never embarrassing. I don't know how you got that into your head. We were just scared Mm. because we never thought that this was a viable career for somebody and certainly not someone who looked like Mm. us, right? Someone who came from an immigrant community. And I was so floored by that, that like the real truth, which was that for, you know, an immigrant household that, truly was the embodiment of the American dream, the sacrifices that they made. They were just worried, like, what's going to happen to my kid if he pursues something that I didn't even think was a real career? So And get his dreams crushed in the process. Totally. Yeah. Which, by the way, for every actor, right. like, you hear- That's part you know, of the job. knows for every callback. Yeah. Exactly. You got to figure out how that works. Yeah. So, did you, have, did you have a person that you saw on camera, like, that you were like, oh- I want to do that. Like, was it Star Wars? Was it? Yeah, I think so. I would. I'm going to credit three people. Okay. First, Tom Hanks and Denzel. Oh, like no. watching them yeah. when I was a kid. Tom Hanks because, you know, like big, obviously. But then all of his, um, all of his drama too. It's like this actor does drama and comedy seamlessly. I want to do the same mm-hmm. thing. Um, Denzel just because of the the power of his performances, but Denzel also ties into Mira Nair, who's a director uh, who I really admired when I was a a kid. Uh, She directed Denzel in one of his first movies. I think it came out 
the year after Glory, so he had either just won an Oscar or was about to win an Oscar, and she was the first Indian-American director whose work I had seen. It was a story about a family. The family happened to be this Indian family in Mississippi. The movie's called Mississippi mm -hmm. Masala, uh, and it was the first time I saw brown characters who, by the way, were either not played by characters in brown face. Right. So like usually they just paint white folks and put them in brown face right. or cartoon characters where it's just like an exaggerated voice. So this was the first time that they were they were actual brown actors. But more than that, they were also flawed, you know, like a lot of that's one thing I think we miss when we talk about stereotypes is like as much as you don't want to be like a, a stereotype um, that people associate with something negative. You also just don't want to be a stereotype that's one note, period. Right. So the idea that these characters were flawed and they were making mistakes and some of them were racist and some of them, you know, had issues they were dealing with in their own lives. Like all of the the things that make humans humans, I was seeing for the first time through Sarita and Denzel and Mira Nair. Um, this was around the same time as the Tin Man thing, right. by the way. So I kind of walked out of there going, I want to be like all of them. Right. I want to do the thing that they're doing, you know? Um, so I want to talk about like the challenges of getting an, an agent or was it just like, I go to UCLA, I'm in California, agents fall out of trees. <laughs> I was I was not one of the agents fall out of trees mm -hmm. kids. There were those, by the way, who immediately got agents or just mm -hmm. had, like had agents before they even started yeah. as these 18-year-olds. I'm like, aside from the fact that y'all are phenomenally attractive, how did you get an agent? <laughs> and in a lot of cases, that was, you know, that was the reason. Look, and, and it was also very cookie mm -hmm. cutter. Forget race and ethnicity. If you didn't physically look like a very specific type they just didn't know what to do with you because there were no roles for you to play in the minds of these producers or network execs. And it took like four years to finally get an agent. Um, and I remember along the way, there was a wonderful actor named Jenna Vonoy, who's mm -hmm. still a, a, a good friend of mine. She was on the show Blossom yeah. at the time. And Jenna said, uh, it's crazy to me. It's been like three years of you searching. Can I at least like bring your, your reel and your headshot and your resume to my manager? She had a real A-list manager at the time. And she's like, you know, I don't know if he'll sign you, but at least he'll meet with you, right? And you can, like, get some feedback. So I said, yes. She calls me a week later, and she goes, um, so he said he doesn't want to meet with you. And I just, do you, how much do you want to know about why? I'm like, look, my approach to this side of what we do is all business. So tell me why he didn't want to meet with me, and I'm just going to change whatever it is I have to change in my, my reel or my headshot or whatever it is, right? So she goes, so first of all, he saw your tape. He, he said you were really good. I'm like, okay, so what's the but? And she said, the but is that he said that um, somebody who looks like you is never going to work in Hollywood enough to warrant taking 10% of your salary because he's just never going to be able to make as much money as he's going to have to put in effort-wise to try to get you jobs because people who look like you are just never going to work enough. So for that reason, he doesn't want to waste his time or yours by even taking the meeting. Unbelievable. Right. Just... By the way, the, the reason I talk about a lot of this in my book for that reason is like, we need to celebrate how far this industry that we all right. love has come. Obviously still a long, long way, way to go. go but, right. <laughs> but, but it's like, but you have to look at the, the, the benchmarks there. So, so she was like, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, look, I, I gotta be honest. I really appreciate this candor because um, I, I wouldn't have had that guidance. Also, I thought whatever I was going to hear is what I would change, right? But apparently there's nothing that I can change about what you've just told me. It's just that the glass ceiling is too high right now. Right. So I'm just going to have to keep at it and keep 
doing whatever I can do to get my foot in the door. Cal, where does that come from? Because if that happened to me, I'd be like, yeah. well, you tell your manager, he's a fucking <laughs> asshole. And then I would yeah. crawl under my bed and stay there. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I learned how to make screwdrivers around that time. <laughs> so I, I drank a lot of vodka and orange juice and looked at a lot of LSAT prep books uh-huh. during various stages of inebriation. <laughs> um, but- Aside from the aside from the anger and self-loathing that I think everybody who's gone through anything like this can relate to, the, the other thing that was kind of interesting around that time, there was a speaker who I saw, and I, I wish I could remember her name. I've been trying for years to figure out who this might be, but around that time, there was, I think, only one black woman on network TV, and somebody asked her during this Q&A that I went to, they said, you know, presumably you get told no a lot, just like any actor, but... We assume you get told no a lot because nobody knows what to do with a black actor. How do you process that? You know, how angry does it make you? And she said, I'm paraphrasing obviously, but she was like, you know, it it makes me angry. And I could choose to take all of that energy as anger and only be angry and that's it. But instead, what I decided was I know that I need to be the best person when I walk in the room. I know that I'm going to have to work a thousand times harder just to get the audition. And so I know that the casting director or the producer, if they say no because of the color of my skin or because of my gender, I know that they know that I was the most qualified person in the room. Mm -hmm. And so I'm leaving that with them. Mm -hmm. And it may not make a difference to them, right? They don't give a shit if that's who they are, if they're sexist and racist and all those things. But for her, she was like, I'm focusing all of that on the things that I can control and how to be the best person in the room. I think for most actors, it's like, to me, the definition of success is, can I pay my rent through my art? And so as long as you kind of have those benchmarks in between the screwdrivers and the crying, right. there's also a lot of like, here's how I'm going to get to the next job. To go into that business in general, you have to manage your own expectations Time frames need to go out the window. You can't say, oh, by the time I'm 20, I'll have done this. Or by the time I'm 30, I'll have achieved this. How many actors have we only heard of when they've become like 50-year-olds? And you're like, an overnight sensation. And you're like, yeah, I've been in the business for 38 years. Or This is my yeah, first exactly. job. So when you get your agent, and I'm assuming your agent must have seen you in a showcase or – Cold submission. Cold submission. It was a cold submission. It was a, a headshot and resume that I sent. And by the way, my first agent was a woman named Barbara Cameron, Kirk and Candace Cameron's mom. Oh my gosh. Who back in the day was a talent agent for kids. Holy cow. And she turned out to be just a a wonderful, calming voice and a person I could really rely on in an industry that's otherwise not known for its um, honesty or goodness, you know? And good for her for like seeing talent and saying, yeah. you know, hang in there. It's it's coming. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And do you remember yeah. your first job? Uh, I do remember my first job. So I lied on my resume. By the of way, course, every actor, every actor like, lies. Sh- we all do. And by the way, like I had enough of a chip on my shoulder at this point to be like, I know why I'm not getting auditions. So I'm fine with lying to get the auditions, right? So I lied among the many special skills that I cannot do that I said I could do. I listed basketball and Barbara Cameron called me one day and she goes, hey, honey, um, there's an audition for a Nike commercial. You, you can play basketball? And I go, yep. She goes, are you good? I was like, oh, yeah. 
She goes, okay. So she sends me on this audition. All I know is that it's for Nike. I'm going to have to dribble a basketball and talk trash. Oh, God. So I go into the audition. It's like a 2 p.m. audition. And thankfully, it's on the second floor of this building. And the first floor is an accounting office. And the accountants got so angry that people were dribbling basketballs that by the time I got there, they said, hey, we're just going to mime dribbling. Yeah. And... The audition is just going to be talking trash. So we just want to confirm you can play basketball. And I go, oh, yeah. Are you good? Yeah, I'm great. Okay, cool. So we start talking trash. And I am I have a background in improv. So they're laughing. They're enjoying and it. And you're from New Jersey. You are a natural-born trash talker. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I book this commercial. And I'm all I know is it's going to get me my SAG card. I show up and... It becomes very clear to all the Nike executives and everyone that I cannot play basketball. And apparently this commercial is for the NBA lockout. must have been 1998. And it's with Samuel L. Jackson. (sighs) And so it's me, him, and these two other guys. And the premise of the commercial is that he has to watch these kids play basketball because the NBA is on strike. So I can't play. So they had to change the entire commercial to make it about a guy who can't play basketball (laughs) instead of... Instead of Sam watching three kids who can play. And so it worked out. It was too late to recast it. It's like a miracle. That's a miracle. It was crazy. It's on YouTube, by the way. Oh, okay. That's good. We're going to have to, we're going to have to look that up. So, okay. (laughs) We were talking a little bit about uh, pivoting while you were in the waiting room. Because I'm thinking about Joaquin. My youngest son is in drama school at the University of Michigan. But he also shows a degree of interest in politics and the military and that sort of thing. And I think like so many skill sets involved in politics are skill sets that you use in acting. So how did you make that pivot into politics? So in my case, I actually I had no plan to do any of that. I did have an interest. I still have an interest in things like cultural diplomacy mm-hmm. and international studies and stuff like that. So I had done a grad program in international security. And before you give me too much credit, it was largely an online program, not a full master's. But it was like the nerdy part of me was like, this is the thing I want to do. But the real way that I got involved in 2007, October of 2007, I was on um, the medical drama house with Hugh Laurie, Olivia Wilde, Omar Epps, like really great cast. And Olivia, who remains just very well-read, incredible, pays a lot of attention to politics and and social issues and things like that she knocked on my trailer door and she goes um hey i have a plus one to this barack obama event do you want to come and just for reference october of 2007 was like nobody really knew who barack obama was i had read his first book which olivia saw me reading on set and that's why she knocked on my trailer door and i go nah i'm cool i assume it's like some political campaign event she goes, yeah. I mean, it's it's about 50 people and they're plus ones. It's all artists. Um, Obama's apparently going to try to recruit people to help him in Iowa, which is the first state to vote in the Democratic primary process. So don't you think it'd be interesting to go? And I was like, I think it'd be interesting if it wasn't a recruitment event. So no, I'm good. So she like kept asking again and again. And finally, she just goes, just so you know, it's an open bar. And I was like, sweet, I'm super down. Yeah. You know what's so, so funny? She wanted to have the best, smartest plus one there. Well, if that was the case, then I am. She's way smarter than me. I'm, a, I'm not just saying this to be self-deprecating. So then I said yes, right? Yeah. And I'm like, all right, it's going to be basically 100 artists. They're all going to presumably ask 
questions that we all wonder, like, what are you doing on arts education mm-hmm. or the National Endowment for the Arts funding or things like that. So I was like, I want to ask something that's different. So I went on the Obama campaign website. I, I read stuff about climate change. Like, what's the senator's climate change proposal? Now, here's where it gets nerdy for me. There was a section there about ethanol mm-hmm. and turning corn into fuel. And I remember that there was an article I read in Foreign Affairs magazine. Because, of because he was reading Foreign Affairs right. magazine. Write that down. And there was, there was this article in Foreign Affairs a few months earlier that talked about how if we grow corn to turn into ethanol, it could drive the price of corn up for people who rely on it for food right. in the developing world because the marketplace doesn't distinguish between corn for industrial production and corn for human consumption. Further punishing so, those in already oppressed societies. Exactly. So I I remembered that and I was like, well, here's my smarty yeah. kids question for this junior senator. So I go with Olivia to this event. I'm drinking all the wine. Yeah, good. And Obama finally makes the rounds and comes over to where Olivia and I are standing and, and – uh, and I said, Senator, I, I mean, I have a question for you. <laughs> you know, I read your climate change proposal and I uh, saw that you're you're investing in, in ethanol. Isn't that just going to drive the price of corn up for people in the developing world? And Obama looks at me and goes, oh, yeah, um, I read that article in Foreign Affairs, too. <sighs> And Ooh, uh, I'm sweating. if you had read my website carefully, you would have seen that I'm proposing investing in corn-based ethanol as a bridge to cellulosic ethanol so that you can create biofuels from things like our grass clippings and the leaves that we rake in our front lawn. And it gives me that like cocky smirk that whether you love or hate Obama yeah. for folks listening is irrelevant. Yeah. You know that yeah, cocky smirk. Yeah. Gives me that cocky smirk and walks off. And Olivia just looks at me and goes, you just got schooled by Barack Obama. Oh, my God. And we both signed up to volunteer. (laughs) (laughs) Did you hang out with Obama? Did you play basketball with him? Did he teach you basketball? I'm going to I will be honest. I was asked to play basketball and I very politely, very quickly declined on account of how bad I am at a basketball player. I'll tell you what's interesting. Early political campaigns. And obviously this is for somebody running for president, but I, it, it's really the same for a lot of political campaigns. If you're joining a campaign at its infancy and in October of 2007, you know, the, the Obama campaign really only had, I think, a couple of hundred people spread mostly between Chicago, where the headquarters was, and then New Hampshire and Iowa. You really work closely with people who then become, you know, a senior advisor to the president if that person wins. Um, or even the the principals, you know, the the president mm-hmm. or people close to the people who become the president. Because those campaigns are so small. So you kind of see like the real nuance of it's in our world, it's like the sausage making behind the scenes, right? You're in a production meeting, you're going through like mood boards. Like none of the audience wants to see any of that, but they all have questions about like what was it like making this project? So it's things like that that you really see, I think, a more human side of people who then go on to to be an elected office. And um, the one thing that my, my biggest takeaway, and this is not always the case, as we know from many politicians, but um, what you kind of saw behind the scenes with with both the president and, and the former first lady is kind of what you saw on camera, you know, uh, great sense of humor, very smart, very kind. Um, whether people agreed with them or not was irrelevant in terms of how their approach to folks was always consistent. And I thought that, that's kind of nice because 
not everybody's like that. You know, the cameras are on. Sometimes people act one way and they act a different way behind the scenes. And that just wasn't the case. We have had such limited experiences with the Obamas, but I do concur that what you see is what you get. There's not like yeah. a, a public persona and a private persona. I think it's all right. the same. It's like just kind and normal. Yeah. I- I'll tell you a quick story. Jan Chalet, our producer, is here. You know yeah. her from live. And we were doing this thing called the Run Across America, which we were working with the Obama administration. Michelle Obama had a campaign to get kids moving. Mm-hmm. And we had this distance runner named Dean Carnassus, who was running across America, raising money for this organization. Wow. And we were running with him. I mean, we would run a mile and then get back on the bus uh-huh. and drive next yeah. to him. Anyway... It's culminating at the White House. We're running with this group of school kids. We're all running together to the White House. The night before, we arrive with the bus, and there's like a lot going on. There's like lots of like conversations happening, and something feels strange. Something feels not right. And all of a sudden, there's a press conference. Barack Obama walks out and announces that they had killed Osama bin Laden. Wow. And I'm like, pack up the bus. We're going home. The event's over. Yeah. Like, they're not going to be like, sure, Kelly, come on in with the school kids (laughs) and we'll do the event. Everything went on as planned. They were like, "Why why would we cancel? I was like, everybody on the bus. I was like the Italian mother. I'm like, get on the bus. Don't make a mess of anything. Don't touch anything. Just get on the bus before they realize we've been here. And Jan was like, no, they say we're still doing the event tomorrow. And I couldn't believe it. Wow. And it was like business as usual. That's awesome. I think as as actors, you know, you, at least for me, you lead with emotion, right? Because what we do is is automatically like you need to tap into that. If there's one thing I learned from from being in that building, particularly working for that administration, it was the the idea of patience and, and kindness and doing the right thing um, and having that emotion when you need to, obviously I was in the outreach office. So that meant that I, I was doing that kind of work, but sometimes the, the game face and the making sure that things are going the way they're supposed to go, is just like a thing that you do. And it, I very much appreciated having those lessons because it was like, oh yeah, no, it's not just all about me and my feelings. Right. Slow and steady wins the race and keeping it calm. I mean, tapping into the passion when you need it. But mostly being calm and open and available. I think that's like speaks to your success. Speaking of passion, I want to talk about your partner a little bit, Josh, Josh. which is why I led with Albert's coming out story. Oh, yeah. That was a great story, by the way, Albert. (laughs) I want to, we want to know, like, we want to know your origin story. So first you have to come out to your parents that you're an actor. Uh (laughs) Then you have to come out to your parents. Tell me about that conversation and which one was harder. Anyway, first you have to come out to your parents that you're an actor. Then you have to come out to your parents. And which one was harder? Yeah, I, you know, I I, uh, I say this and it sounds jokey, but once you're an Indian American kid who told his parents that he's going to be an actor, anything else that you tell them will just be way easier than that conversation. (laughs) 
And in my case, in my case, you know, it, it, it's an anomaly. I'm always a little guarded when I answer this question because of my experience. I know is not uh, many people, or, or perhaps even most people's experience. Where I, you know, I, I grew up so close to New York City. Um, my uh, my dad worked in Manhattan. My parents were raised in a very secular uh, household where you know my grandparents had marched with Gandhi, and their view of faith and their view of family was for their time. Uh, what we would call progressive in today's terms. And also, by the way, I like, I figured my sexuality out relatively later in life. I wasn't like one of those 12 year olds who's like, I'm super gay. Like I envy that. Like, I mean, that's amazing when people know that, you know? Um, so for me, all of that was delayed, which meant I was, I was essentially a young adult and the conversation was much more straightforward, much more supportive, um, which I wish m more people had. For me, the, the bigger challenge there was, um, and I remember this so vividly, uh, you know, I shared I shared my story with my my brother and my parents first. I was like, "Hey, super gay, just FYI." But then I called my manager and I said, "Hey, uh, I don't know if this is ever gonna impact anything in work, but I'm just curious. Like, how do actors meet nice people to date? Like, how do you know that somebody that you're dating wants to date you for you? Like, what are the what are the ground rules here? And is it any different? Because um, right around you know it was around the time that I started working mm -hmm. as well uh and he said you know he my manager is not gay but one of his co-workers was he's like why don't you guys just grab sushi and have a conversation and you know he might have thoughts for you i was like yeah great all good so i remember meeting this guy he's a uh he's a producer um and he goes so i understand you've got some things that you want to talk about and i was like albert i don't know about you but i, I like i'm just very casual like what once I figured my shit out, I was like, cool, this is what the deal is, you know? So, uh, so I don't know why he's the one being weird. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's like, oh yeah. I mean, it's less about the gay thing and more about just like, how do you meet a nice guy? And, uh, and he goes, so listen, um, the first thing I just want you to know is like, just don't worry. And I was like, well, I'm not worried. I'm just curious, but thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that because yeah, I mean, I'm just going to email you a list. Um, just of some guys and their photos. And I'm like, whoa, that's so cool. Playing matchmaker already. Yeah, good. And he goes, yeah, and you know, they're not that expensive. Um, and they're they're never going to say anything. So you never have to worry about anybody saying anything. <laughs> and I was like, sorry. You misunderstand think, this assignment. I think, you, I think you don't understand. No disrespect to sex workers. <laughs> that's not what I'm looking right. for. My question to you is, how do I meet a nice guy go on a couple take, of take dates. Take home to my mother. Like, and he goes, uh, I I don't know anything about all that, but I'm telling you, these guys are like really hot. I'll send you the pictures. You'll see, and you can afford it. Did, did he send you the dossier? <laughs> no, I told him not to. I told oh my God. Him. I know, I know. In retrospect, I'm very curious. Do you still have the same manager? I do have the same manager. I wonder if he still knows it. That's really funny, actually. Here's what you need to ask. You need yeah. to see <laughs> if you can get that original dossier of men. Yep. Yep. The men that don't the, speak. The binders of men, the men that don't speak, yep. that don't say anything, yeah. that you can afford. Yeah, yeah. I just want to see that list from those years ago. By the way, let me just tell you, if if I can find this list, I'm coming over with three bottles of wine and we're doing a night of this. Like, oh, this is going to be. No, we are doing a night of the list. All right, let's get off of the sexuality stuff. Okay. I want to talk about you potentially becoming a host, the host. I'm going to call oh. you the host. I like to manifest Thank things. You. Thank you. Because when I, I think of you and The Daily Show, I think perfect marriage, of course. Oh, thank it you. It makes so much sense. Thank you. So I am one of, I think it's 12 or 13 guest hosts. I, I will say I was 
really flattered to get that initial phone call, especially when I saw the lineup. Like, I'm a huge fan of all of these incredible people, you know, Sarah Silverman, Hassan Minaj, D.L. Hughley. It's like, it's an incredible list. And I've loved the show since, you know, what it came out, I guess, when I started college right. or so. Um, look, it's a dream job of sorts because, like like you said, my, my real first passion is comedy, making people laugh ever since the pelvic thrust in eighth grade. <laughs> but then the idea that um, the country is at such a crazy place politically, right? Nobody talks to each other. Mm. Um, and that's just sort of the way it is. And what I love about comedy is that it can bring people together. And even satire, like John Stewart especially, was so good at he would have people who he vehemently disagreed with um, on so many issues, and they were able to have a lively but respectful conversation on that show. I just think it's such a cool format to be able to do that. So thank you, Kelly, for saying that. I would, well, um, I appreciate you joining us today. And um, I, I've got to tell you, make sure you watch Cal Penn when he takes over The Daily Show. And your episodes are still streaming on Comedy Central, so make sure you check it out. Don't forget to pick up his book, You Can't Be Serious, and then also download the audio because it is effing brilliant. And you can also watch Cal in Getting Warmer with Cal Penn on Bloomberg, right? Yes. It's a climate change docuseries that's more focused on climate solutions than the uh, the doom and gloom kind of stuff. Thank you for joining us today. Really appreciate it, Cal Penn. Thank you so All much, right. Kelly. I appreciate it. Jan Albert, oh, what say you? I'm I'm riveted by him with that first manager that yeah. he wanted to know, and he said, "I'm going to look at this from the business side of it. What do I have to change?" And then to hear that feedback at such an early age, and back in those days, when well, you know what Hollywood in that environment was like, I mean, what a crushing thing! And then to rise above it and to see what he's done and accomplished after that is miraculous. I sometimes think you can only take those crushing blows when you're young. Yeah. Because I think of like, when I started in New York City, I lived under a desk in oh somebody's God, office, you know, and you so us. I wouldn't be able to put that together for myself. I just think like there's certain crushing things that you're not aware of as crushing things when you're young, maybe. But you yeah. were, that's what helped him overcome it. He just persevered because of that. I always wonder, like those are the moments that really turned someone. My favorite part was that it was far worse to tell his parents he wanted to be an actor <laughs> than that he was gay. It's amazing. Honestly, if my parents at that age were so against something I was doing, I think that would have been right then and there, I would have been done with it. But the fact that he didn't give up after all these people kind of told him there was no chance, mm -hmm. it's just something that, you know, we all have to take in a little bit and, and realize when there's something you want, go for it. We do hear it a lot, interestingly enough, like on the talk show, it's usually the children of immigrant parents that are like anything but that, like literally like not an actor. But for him to now know that they were scared and that's how what their approach was. They weren't they were, embarrassed. They, they were, were scared. scared. Oh. Yeah. Wow. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> hey, listen, all of you listeners at home, we're a new show in a sea of podcasts. Gosh, there's too many. <laughs> but this one's really good. I'm not saying it just because I'm the host, because as you can hear, there are many voices here, but we're a really good show. So make sure you tell your friends. Let's Talk Off Camera is available every week on Stitcher, the SXM app, and all major podcast listening platforms. Can't wait to talk off camera with y'all next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>
Let's Talk Off Camera with Kelly Ripa is a co-production of Melojo Productions and PRX Productions with help from Goat Rodeo. Our theme song is Follow Me from APM Music. From Melojo, our team is Kelly Ripa, Mark Consuelos, Albert Bianchini, Jan Chalet, Devin Schneider, Michael Halpern, Jacob Small, Roz Therian, Seth Gronquist, and Nick Ribola. From PRX Productions, our team is Kara Schillen, Genevieve Sponsler, Megan Nidolsky, Edwin Ochoa, Rebecca Seidel. Additional sound design by Terrence Bernardo. The executive producer of PRX Productions is Jocelyn Gonzalez. This show is powered by Stitcher.